So, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? Our culture, I think it was, I just love um, Matt wanting to know what, what is it? What is this about? And it amazes me, the Lord's allowed a number of books from people. From Heaven is for Real, Three Old Boys Account of Heaven, 90 Minutes in Heaven by Don Piper, Kevin and Alex Malarkey had written a book, The Boy Came Back from Heaven. Isn't it interesting, all these books exploding about God wanting us to know about the reality of the fact that this life is not intended to be the end all of all life. If you listen to the words of Jesus as he was preparing to actually go on trial and then go to his death, the resurrection, eventually the ascension, as we come to Matthew in this chapter, specifically in verse 31 of chapter 25, Jesus has, prior to that, walked out of the temple grounds. He has basically looked at the temple itself and he said, God no longer lives there. It's a ghost town. And as he walks out of there, he says, not one brick will be upon another. And in this next generation, you'll know that and see that. He walks out. They go to the Mount of Olives where he goes to pray. And in this, it's probably, I'm thinking, Wednesday before his death on Friday. And he shares with his disciples some of his thoughts because they ask him, they say, well, when is all this going to happen? And he begins to share with them in Matthew 24. He teaches about what this is going to be like, that there's this great spiritual shift, this shaking that's going on. The God who had um, been present with Israel through the old covenant is now releasing this new covenant of his grace and his goodness. And this new covenant is going to be something that is just unbelievable for people to understand. He is not going to be housed in a building. He is not going to be housed in a temple that you have to go to. He is going to, if you open your heart to Him and recognize your need of Him and, and acknowledge your sin and repent and, and, and allow Christ to come in and invite His Holy Spirit to, to lead and guide your life, He will now reside in you. You. You are the temple of this God. And everywhere will you place your foot, where you go to work, where you shop, you live are to live with an acknowledgement that God lives in you. And so Jesus wanted them to know this. And so he's up in the hills. He's teaching about this in Matthew 24. And then he ends it with three parables, three parables that he's speaking to the followers of Christ. So I believe these parables were intended for his church in the sense those who are following him. And he has three parables and he basically says, from the time that I leave, and they're thinking, when is this kingdom of God going to come again? This kingdom that Dr. Mary Neal spoke about that is just, doesn't your heart long for home? I, that's also surprising. You know, was it peace? No, I can't explain. It's just like being home. And he says, this home, although we'll fully know it someday, you can know it now in your heart with the Spirit of God living and residing in you. And so he says, let me share with you a parable. There will be a time. In fact, it will be a time of delay. And he says, the first one is, is in this time, what I want you to do, followers of Jesus, is live ready at any moment. That the oil of your lamps is constantly filled with the presence of God. And then he says, you've all been given talents. You have a life to live. In this time, 
Not only do you live ready with the presence of God, but invest your life. You've been given talents for the kingdom of God. And now we come to this third parable. And I think he's basically saying, in a sense, to people, surprise. You may not realize it, but every little bit matters. The little stuff in your life gives evidence that the life of God is in you. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46 I'm reading from the New International Version. It says, When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him. And He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. This is what Jesus is saying is going to happen at the end of the age. And then the king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger and you invited me in and I needed clothes and you clothed me and I was sick and you looked after me and I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and And they're thirsty and give you something to drink. When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. And I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. And I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. And I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. And I was sick and in prison. And you did not look after me. And they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly, I tell you. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts and our minds and speak, I pray, your word through me, your servant. Help us to know this incredible love and compassion that you have for us, that you ask us to explode with like those angels exploded into the lives of other people around us. In this time when we wait for your coming again, we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. I'd like to keep this really simple and easy to understand. And so I want to share with you, there are basically three things you could do. There's so much to teach on this. I just go through and there's so many doctrinal issues. But I just want to share with you as best I can what I think the text is kind of laying out for us. And the the first few verses, 31 and 33, through 31 through 33, is is the fact that there's an end. There's There's an end to this whole thing. And then verses 34 to 45, the bulk of it, where he kind of repeats two stories, is the idea there's a separation. And he tells about the basis of the evidence that, that comes as a result of how he separates. And then the last is there's a destination. 
Matthew 25, verse 46. It's just pretty clear, pretty simple. Probably the last words that Jesus said in that kind of teaching mode on the hill, because I wonder if they didn't get up after that and leave. And thank God Matthew actually recorded this. The name Matthew in Hebrew means the gift. And Matthew was a tax collector. And so if you read through Matthew, there's all these, these discourses, five discourses. You don't find them in any other gospel. But, but Matthew, thankfully, was one of those kind of note takers. And he wrote down these discourses. And this is the last of those five. So there's an end, verse 31 through verse 33. The idea is this, that Jesus will return. Life is not some cyclical pattern, such as in Eastern religions or Hinduism would say, that there's this reincarnation and this kind of circular sense of life again and again till finally you move to a place where all selfishness is removed from you, all pain, and you move into nothingness. It's not like that. It's not like even what you might find what Eckenkar teaches just down the road here in a sense, or what we all hear with L. Ron Hubbard in Scientology today. That somehow, again, this kind of almost reincarnational improvement, that's what it is. You just keep improving until eventually everything is good. There is an end to history is what the Word of God says, which Jesus himself says in this story. It's not really a parable. It's more of a poetic kind of um, uh, story that he's sharing here. And Jesus was really quite clear on this. If you look at uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 and verse 42, he says these things. He says, no one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven or the son, but only the father. There will come an end. I will return. History will finally be brought to a close. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Like a thief who comes in the night, so also you must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect Him. This life will come to an end. If you don't come to see Him before He comes again through death, there will come a time when Jesus will return. And He went on to say through this that it's a, it's a matter of our response of faithfulness that we watch. We're ready. We're working. We're doing what he's called us to do. We're to renew the earth. We're to follow the ministry that Jesus himself lived out when it says in Acts. Where Peter says, you know how our Lord lived. He went around doing good and healing all those who were under the power of darkness. That's your task. That's our task as a church. Who then, says Jesus, is the faithful and wise servant, the one who the master finds him at work fulfilling his duties. That's the point of the last three parables. Each of these last three parables actually speak about this end. The parable of the ten virgins. At some point, the messenger comes out and he cries, here's the bridegroom come out to meet him. 25 verse 6. The parable of the talents. The business owner returns from his trip and he says to the guys who he's loaned the money to, who they're overseeing, they're his financial group, and he says, hey, look at you guys, but settle accounts. What have you done? There is a sense that our gifts and our talents, when we come to that end point, when Jesus comes again, he says at this point when he returns, there will be this settling of accounts. And then this, the sheep and the goats, I kind of like how the message paraphrases it. When he finally arrives, blazing in beauty and all his angels with him, the Son of Man will take his place on the glorious stone. And then all the nations will be arranged before him, and he will sort the people out, much as a shepherd sorts out the sheep and goats, putting the sheep to his right and the goats to his left. There is an end to history. What's interesting is he makes a statement that he will go to his throne. Jesus now at this point is making this statement. It's really interesting as we went through this whole 
Matthew's gospel, one of the things you find in Matthew from the very beginning with the genealogies and all through it with the angel visitations at his birth, all the way through in his teachings and what people were trying to do were to make, they were always trying to make him king. And he never really came out and said he was the king. They were always trying to get him to say it. Now, finally, isn't this interesting? At this point, he says to his followers, guess what? What everyone's been saying, what I've been trying to get everyone to say, I love this about God. You know what God does is he reveals himself to you and he always asks us to confess with our mouth who he is. He doesn't force you to say it. He's asking you out of your own will to say it. And so at this point, he stands before them and he says, I'm coming to my glorious throne. And if you look at verse 34, he finally makes it incredibly clear what Matthew has been hinting out throughout this entire gospel. Then the king will say. Because he's called himself the son of man over and over again. They know from Daniel that he's calling himself the son of man. But at this point, he's making it clear. The king, I will say. And the end has arrived. And if the first parable raises the question, are you ready? And if the second parable raises the question, are you investing? This third parable does an interesting thing at this point. When it moves to this place in this passage of Scripture, it ask you this question as a follower of Jesus. Are you real? Is this faith you speak out with your words matched up with your life? Is it authentic? Is it coming from your heart? Does it evidence, as George said so clearly last Sunday, humility and compassion? There is a separation. The separation will be made on those marks of authenticity and inauthenticity. You know, a shepherd, when they would come after a day, the sheep and the goats would be in the field. They'd be in the same field grazing together. They'd call them in at night. And when they would call them in, they would separate them into two different pens. Often that would take place. And so when he was sharing this, he was sharing something in a pastoral setting that they were well aware of. He was using illustrations that they got They had seen shepherds go ahead and do that. And so what he's kind of saying here, and I think this is something to really take notice of, he is saying to the church, to those disciples, that as the church is in this process over the years of waiting for the return of Christ, not everybody sitting in the pews are living authentic lives. Not everyone who says, Lord, are necessarily living in such a way that Jesus is expressing his life through them. And so he talks about the separation of the sheep and the goats. You've probably heard people say the church is full of hypocrites. Well, the reality is that's not all off. Jesus seems to indicate that can be true. But that doesn't mean that you don't follow it. There aren't people who really, truly, genuinely follow after God. In fact, Jesus is basically making this statement, saying at the end of time, guess what? Even the church will be separated. And those who truly know Jesus and who are truly walking in the Spirit of God, the oil of that lamp is always filled with the presence in that sense. They will come to His right and move into His kingdom. Now, there's three words that I think are interesting in this passage of Scripture when we look at these verses here from verses 34 to 45 that are important, what I call key kind of words that tell you whether it is an authentic life or not. And so he uses these words, and I want you to note that it may surprise you a bit that that none of these, that as we read this story, are around how much theology and Bible you know. Isn't it interesting? 
The evidential expressions of faith, at least in this story, are not about whether you can repeat sections even of the Bible or anything theologically that way. The second evidence is not how bad a person is, but really how good you fail to be, which makes us all hypocrites, right? Because he's now talking not about some flagrant, serial, murderous, overly abusive, wantonly adulterous type of sins that we can use to condemn others and justify ourselves. You know where we reason, at least I'm not doing that. And when Jesus seems to be saying, at least you should have been doing this. Give a glass of water, share some clothes, help with a meal with your ill neighbor, make a visit to your co-worker's son in prison. The separation that is in this verse of Scripture is based not on sins committed, but good deeds omitted, which I just go, ouch. That stabs all of us in our heart. Yet authentic faith is what Jesus is saying, evidences some observable works. And in this sense, it's true, although we are justified merely by faith in what Jesus has done on the cross, it's through our faith in his grace. We are also judged, says Jesus, and throughout the Bible, by the reality of the regeneration of our hearts, the transformation of our lives, which reveal the work of God's spirit through our daily actions. Faith, says Jesus, without works is dead. And what he does here is really interesting. He doesn't look at these kind of big works of a person tithing. He doesn't look at a person serving in some role in a ministry or leading a Bible study or things like that. He looks at the evidence of daily life. Three words. They're simple. It's spontaneous. And it has to do with what you see, your sight. As you go through, there's three things that just seem to be just obvious. That a person who has an authentic, authentic faith evidences this. It's to the simplicity of their life lived in that love. It's to the spontaneity of that love expressed. And it's to how they respond to what they see. So the first one, simple. I think it's easy, interesting to see here that um, he says the, the life that seems to have authentic faith is is just touched by the small needs before them. This is not about grandiose things. It's not about giving big life sacrifices. But it's just the little simple things. Guess what? Every one of us can do. It's the heart that's touched by God. It's, it's this, as one commentator says, it's not whether we call Jesus Lord that is indicator of our belief. It's whether we act as if Jesus is Lord. Do other people look at our life and say, I know you're a follower of Christ by your love. The simple expressions of your love. We make, we make our life so difficult and complex. And what do you think he's saying is that when your life has been touched by the love of God, the love of God begins to so consume your heart and over time begin to transform who you are that you begin to exactly do what you've experienced from him. You've experienced if you've been forgiven greatly, you're going to go out and forgive greatly. You won't be able to stay in a position where you can hold an offense because you you can't live that way before God. He's given you all grace for every little offense you've done. You can't continue to live in such a way where you're not generous because you've experienced the generosity of God when you didn't deserve it at all. So that when you begin to see a need and God has met your need, you begin to say, how can I be generous? How can I meet this here? You are moved when you see those needs that God brings before you in just simple ways. Love, he seems to say, is expressed in quiet, simple meeting of needs 
where you think of others, you do what is right because it is right. You do good for goodness sake. You know, old uh, part of that Christmas carol, right? You do good for goodness sake. Matthew verse 36 says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me a drink. I was homeless and you gave me a room. I was shivering and you gave me clothes. I was sick and you stopped to visit. I was in prison and you came to me. And the only difference between this authentic faith and the inauthentic faith is one word. It's it's the negative word. It's the not. I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was thirsty and you did not give me a drink. I was homeless and you did not give me a bed. I was shivering and you did not give me clothes. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. For authentic love always springs from authentic faith. The second thing you see here is spontaneity. There's a spontaneousness to it. The authentic, when you look at this, their response is like, who, me? Really? Are you Seriously? I, we did that? Because it, serving and loving has become so natural, it flows from their heart. Their life has become, in a sense, naturally supernatural. Authentic faith has such authentic love that you don't even realize you're doing it. It's become so natural and second nature because it really is your second nature. It's your second nature given by God as a gift through Jesus Christ. And it's that second nature that begins to rule you so that as it says in verse 37, then those sheep who are going to say, Master, who are you talking about? When did we ever see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we ever see you sick or in prison and and, and come to you? But notice what the goats on the other side are saying. They're almost saying something similar. On the other hand, they're inauthentic faith. They almost protest the opposite. It's kind of like if only we had known, if we had just maybe seen, we would have responded differently. It's all conditional. It's about merit. It's about somehow getting something for what you just did. And we all can live that way. Part of living and growing in, in your faith and growing in your maturity as a person is when you come to that place where you start making your life not based on condition, but because you know you do what is right. I remember that. I remember um, as a young husband, well, maybe even an old husband, um, you know how you, you, you vacuum, you do things, and you just, you want, you're doing these things and you're, you're hoping you're getting points, Right? Anybody, any, any guys like that at all? Ah, there's a few honest men here. That's what Jesus is saying. It's that kind of love that's really about getting points. It's about, you know, look, God, this is not grace. This is about merit. And he's saying these people with an inauthentic faith, they're doing their life because it's about merit. And when it's about merit, then you really begin to say, well, you know, I don't know if I can do this right now. It's, you know, you do what you do for yourself. And there's a huge difference. The sheepishly authentic do it without a thought. They act spontaneously from a love without a thought of merit. They're humbled by their own selfishness. And in that humility of their own selfishness, they begin to seek to selfishly let Jesus live through them. They're not perfect. They blow it. They miss opportunities. And yet there's this changing, transforming heart because of the faith that has been placed with regard to what God has done for them on the cross. And they understand the incredible debt. They all they understand what he has done to save and to transform their lives that they begin to start allowing that to so rule in their life. Now, the spirit of God, as they call upon the spirit of God, they say, God, has any have you ever done that in your life? 
Have you ever come to that place where you just, you know, you may have accepted Jesus as your Savior, but have you ever come to that place in your life where you said, Jesus, I see my nature. I see my stubbornness. I see my inability to respond like I want to. I see how my anger may come up. I see how I can move to self-pity. You name what it is. I see how I'm so driven by ambition or by greed or wanting to just get things my way. You, you, have you ever come to that place and said, Spirit of God, I so need you to change me. I just ask you, Spirit of God, to move into me and to make this nature which you promised on the cross something evidentially true so that when people see you, guess what? What I love about that story that we had in the beginning of the lady, Mary Neal, she said she was so drawn to these, these angel beings because they were exploding with compassion. They were just full of love. Can you imagine if, if, if the Spirit of God so filled our hearts, people, And it wasn't about trying to get someone to believe what we believe. But it was so much about our meeting their needs with compassion, giving a drink, putting clothes on their back, helping them in a situation when their marriage is desperate, helping a person when they've lost someone they dearly love in their life. And we come around with them with this exploding kind of compassion and humility and love. And we just love them. You're going to they're going to want to know your God. You're not going to have to convince them. That's what Jesus is saying here. These lives were just simple. Anybody can do it. You can do it with the person who lives right next door to you. In fact, the person who may share the bed with you. And it's spontaneous. After a period of time, as you begin to allow the Spirit of God through obedience and understanding what His Word has to say about what is right and wrong and moving into it, over a period of time, it becomes habitual. It becomes spontaneous. It becomes so much so a part of you that you don't even recognize when you're doing it. And then sight. The authentic see Jesus in others. They see God's image. Beneath the pain, the frustration, the ugliness, the distortion, the devastation that sin has caused in that individual's life, that is standing or kneeling or flat on the floor before them, whether a neighbor or a coworker, a homeless guy holding a sign or a rainbow promoter holding a placard, or you fill in the blank, they see Jesus. They see someone who was designed and created by God, his image stamped on their heart, and they see the only response they can have is compassion and love. And that takes all different kinds of forms. It may mean just speaking the truth in love. It may mean not saying any truth in love. To the sheep who ask when, in verse 40, the king will say, I'm telling the solemn truth. Whenever you did one of these things to someone, overlooked or ignored, that was me. You did it to me. And to the goats who ask when, in verse 45, Jesus says, He will answer them, I'm telling you the solemn truth, whenever you failed to do one of these things to someone who was being overlooked or ignored. That was me. That was me you walked by. That was me you laughed at. That was me you judged. That was me who you scorned. You failed to see me, Jesus in that person you failed to love. And verse 46 says there's a destination. 
Not only is there an end, there will be judgment, there is a separation, but there is a destination. And um, This is so important to hear. We don't want to hear this in our culture today. We are headed in one direction or another. Our life trajectory is moving in one direction or another. All people will go to one place or another. The Bible clearly teaches it. Jesus says it. There is a heaven and there is a hell. Matthew 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment. And he's talking to people possibly in the church, this church right now. And the righteous will go to eternal life. You and I always have been meant for one destination. Every person God ever created was meant for one destination. Matthew 25, verse 34, the king says to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. And I love, again, Mary Neal, she said the king of God, she wanted to go home. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. It has been prepared for you. I bet you it's hard to leave that place when it feels like you're just home. When your heart's been longing for that, the Word of God tells us all the time there's a city that's a lot better than the city that you're living in. There is a home that's a lot better than the home that you built for yourself. It's really nice. Some of you have great homes. I don't want to come down on that. That's not the home. Because everyone who is heart is beating for this world to be renewed and is a part of the process of renewing this world is their heart is beating for the home that has been prepared for them. And he says, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. But then, catch this. No person in this earth was ever created for hell. Listen to what Jesus says. Then he will say to those on the left, he's not saying they won't go to hell. It's not possible that every person's going to be in heaven. It doesn't say that in God's word at all. He very clearly says to those who are this goats, he says, those of you, and he's speaking again to people in the church. He says, depart from me. Out of my presence, you who are cursed. Catch these words. Into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It was not ever prepared for you. When Satan and all his angels fell, God, before the creation of all mankind, God created a place for them. And it wasn't meant for you. You were meant for heaven. You were meant to live in a relationship with God, your Father. You have been created a temple to house the Spirit of God. And some of you need to say, Spirit of God, I ask you, I call upon you to come in. Fill me with all the fullness to transform me to live the kind of life that is simple and spontaneous and sees you and everyone. And Jesus makes this possible and all you need to do is open your heart. Follow the way of Jesus and you will live, says Jesus. You will be saved from your sin and selfishness. And the, the evidence of authentic faith will begin to grow. I didn't say you'll be perfect. You won't be doing it perfect, but it will begin to grow in your life. And so you need to just not be so hard on yourself. You, you just like to heap on guilt because you had it in your family system or you like to live in shame. And God's saying, by his word, he says, guess what? I've given you the Holy Spirit of God. If you ask for forgiveness, I've come in. I've removed it. And when you make a mistake, admit it's a mistake and just move on and just call upon me to start living the way that I've called you to live. But I just want to say, if you're in this place and the Spirit of God has been speaking to you and you know you're not right with God or you never have opened your heart to God, you've never said, I'm sorry, God, for my sins, I, and you've never repented of God, I just want to share with you, God says if you have never made that decision, 
there is a place that was not designed for you, but he has designed a place that he wants you to go. And so I'm just going to ask you. I want you to consider as we, we move through the service, whether you want to receive Jesus as your personal savior. And everything inside is going to be fighting, saying no. And I just also want to say to some of you as well. You know Jesus. You've got a lot of head knowledge. You have a lot of things going on. And you know how to call Lord, Lord. I'm going to make this real pointed. Because you can look at you and go, you never lived out the lordship of my life in you. I really don't know you. Well, this is one of these kind of like laugh, fun, have, you know. But the reality is, if you know this, Lord, it is something incredibly wonderful that we're heading towards. In fact, when I look at this and I I, I have some other things I'd share, but let me just kind of share with you in conclusion. The point of all these parables is simply this. Jesus is coming again. In the hope of every person who trusts Jesus to save them, who authentically follows the way of Jesus, is this hope that he's coming again. And the point of all these parables that we have studied, everything in Matthew that we've gone through, the hope of Jesus is this, that we will be ready, filled with the Holy Spirit, investing our one and only life that we have, but the gifts and talents that we have for him, and simply and spontaneously reaching out to every person, even if you can't see Jesus clearly, you know Jesus is there. And every life matters to God. And every little bit of love we express matters to this world we live in. The glass of water given, the article of clothing shared, the meal made for someone ill, the hospital visit, the time spent with someone in prison, whether it's really in prison bars or it's the prison of people's habits that keeps them there. The encouraging note you send, the forgiveness offered, the reconciliation attempted, the dollar given, the smile, the handshake, the hug. Every kindness and mercy and compassion, it matters because Jesus feels it. Lewis Smedes, uh, a great author, and he's a seminary professor, written a number of books. And one of his last books, near the end of his life, the very last chapter, he starts writing about his future hope. And he writes this, I have a living hope, the hope that waits for God and works with God to do what needs to be done to make his world right. I dream of a world where no father will ever abuse his child and where no child will ever abuse his father. I dream of a world in which no mother will ever watch her children go to bed hungry. A world where nobody ever points a gun at another human being or aims a bomb at another city. A world where no family is torn apart by mistrust or brutality. Where no woman will ever be assaulted or insulted by a man. I dream of a world where no father or mother will die of AIDS and leave their children orphans. A world where no aging person is sucked into the nowhere of Alzheimer's disease and where no person will ever die alone. A world where no tribe or race will ever make war on their brothers and sisters and make them slaves or strangers. I dream of a world where we will all be with all who live on God's good creation, where all God's children over every race, color, and culture will know that this kingdom has come, and knowing that will join hands and voices to praise their great creator and redeemer. I have a dream, all right, and I have a desire to go with it. I recall, he says, Jacques Belul saying that if your guts do not ache for what you say you hope for, Catch this. If your guts do not ache for what you say you hope for, you are not really hoping for it at all. In these last lines or so of his book, he says, I meet his test. When I hope that God will come and fix his world, my guts ache like the guts of an old man with a gallstone. 
And when your guts ache like this, you will not only wait for Jesus, but you will live like Jesus, touching all that you can with the best of who you are, because you know that every little bit matters because Jesus feels every touch of goodness. And he he concludes his memoirs with these words. When I was young, I hoped with all my heart that Christ would never come. That he would stay up in heaven where he belonged and leave me alone. Every Sunday morning, as my family shuffled down to our pew in the Berean church, I was scared half to death by a biblical prayer taken from the book of Revelation, painted on the large front of our wall, Maranatha, even so quickly, come, Lord Jesus. I countered it each Lord's Day with a prayer of my own. Oh, Jesus, please take time. Now when I'm lying in bed as an old man, awake at night, I find myself humming an impatient gospel song that chilled me to the bone every time the congregation sang it. All as if it were a standing at the station waiting for a tardy train that is carrying our soldier boy back from the wars. Oh, Lord Jesus, how long? How long are we shout the glad song? Christ returneth. Hallelujah. Amen. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and the worship team comes to lead us. I've given you a few moments to think about this. There is a time where we will be saying, Hallelujah, Christ returns. It's time. The end has come. And I just want to ask you, if you are in a place where you're saying, Jesus, I need your forgiveness and your love. I open my heart to you. I ask you that you come into my life and forgive me of all my sins. If that's your prayer, just just say this simple prayer after me. Lord Jesus, forgive me my sins. I repent of them. And I now make a commitment to follow you. And I ask you to come into my life. And I invite you to be the one to lead my life. In Jesus' name, amen.